Welcome to this talk from Hersham Baptist Church. My name is Phil. I'm the pastor of the church here. It's great to have you with us. We're here to provide great Christian content to help us all to be courageous in our mission, Bible-saturated, spirit-dependent, and loving of others. If this is your first time with us, then why not hit like and subscribe to stay in contact. You can get in touch with me through the email on the screen next to me or the email in the show notes below. We'd love to get you integrated into the life of our church. We have life groups to discuss and do life together, pray for one another, laugh, cry, and go on a journey of faith together. We also have prayer meetings where we can touch the throne of heaven and see God's deliverance and his power. And we have a great Sunday morning meeting in person in Hersham at 10.30 on Arch Road in Hersham. We're together, worshipping together. We've got a full kids programme. There's a thriving community there, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. So why not come along and join us, 10.30 Arch Road in Hersham. Well, we're in the middle at the moment of a series of talks. Think about the big ideas that we need to live by called 10 Rules for Life. The idea is that these are the big values that God gives us that can guide us in living well. They're not what we need to make us right with God. Only putting our trust in Jesus and being baptised and following him can do that. But once we've started to walk that journey of faith and of life with him, once we've received his spirit within us, how then should we live? And these rules that God gives us are a guide to that. You can find the first few talks uh, in this series on the playlists on our website. You uh, might want to go and check them out and see if you can catch up with where we're at. But here's my lunchtime summary of the sixth rule of life. To live well, we must not kill the innocent in what we think, what we say, or what we do. To live well, we must not kill the innocent in what we think, what we say, or what we do. Well, the ten rules that God gives us for life are are summarised in various places in the Bible. You might know them as the Ten Commandments or the Ten Rules, the Decalogue, some people call them, which just mean ten laws. They form the basis of every uh, moral imperative in the Old Testament and of a lot of Jesus' teaching and St. Paul's teaching in the New. And the sixth one is expressed in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. It's very short. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. Now this command is at once both, bizarrely, the least controversial of all the commands. Who thinks murder is a good idea? But it's also the most controversial of all the commands. And part of the uh, split between those two things, between it being so obvious it doesn't need to be said, and so controversial that it makes people very, very upset, lies in understanding what it is that we mean when we talk about not murdering. What does the Bible mean by it? And so I want to unpack this rule by asking three questions. First, what does it mean to forbid murder. What does the rule mean? Secondly, why is it given? Why do we need to be told it? It's always a good idea when you're being given a rule is to ask why the rule is there in the first place. It helps you to understand what it means. And then third, I want to think about some of the practical ethical implications of this rule. I'm just going to give a warning at this stage that we're going to be talking about issues of life and of death that are quite difficult for people to talk about in a way that's uh, calm and compassionate. We want to be absolutely clear that whatever we say today, each person who hears this message is loved and shown grace. 
If you're watching with children, you might want to know that some topics might come up that might prompt difficult conversations for you to have, and you can go away and think about how you want to talk about those things with your kids at some point. Well, the starting premise for the sixth commandment is that human beings shouldn't kill each other. Now, that might seem an obvious thing to say, although if we look back at the history of the 20th century in which hundreds of millions of human beings died at the hands of other human beings, we might wonder whether it's quite as obvious as we thought. As you might expect, it isn't a brand new idea. It isn't as if Moses had a bright idea at Exodus 20 or God told him something he hadn't been expecting and said, do you know what, Moses, you shouldn't kill people. We shouldn't be murdering people. It goes right back to the earliest accounts of what it means for human beings to live together. In the beginning of the Bible, we're told several stories that set the frame for the human condition. They're there to explain who human beings are and why we are like the way that we are. And they're very carefully framed next to each other. And so the earliest story we have after Adam and Eve, after the kind of uh, prototypes of humanity, when human beings choose to go their own way to act selfishly and pridefully, is of Cain and Abel. Two brothers, one of whom becomes jealous of his brother and kills him out of jealousy. And God sees what happens and confronts Cain, the killer. Genesis 4 and verses 9 to 10 then takes up the story. It says this, Then the Lord God said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It's wrong to kill one another. The commandment isn't a simple ban on killing. That's why it's not well translated as do not kill. Actually, it's more nuanced than that. In the Bible, it's both optimistic and hopeful, but also realistic about what it means to live as human beings. It takes the view that whilst human uh, life is never desirable to take human life, killing is never a good thing, God recognised, and the writers of the Old Testament recorded, that there are occasions on which it's regrettably necessary to take life, usually either to safeguard the lives of others or protect society as a whole. There are exceptions, therefore, to this uh, prohibition on killing, this general idea that killing is not okay, for accidental deaths, accidents no one could foresee, proportionate self-defence, just war, and some occasions where capital punishment is permitted. Now, it's important that we understand that these are not occasions on which it's good to kill, but they are occasions on which it's necessary to do so. When Jesus came, he took this rule and he expanded it beyond this. He said, I want you to understand what the rule really is about. You think you're fine because you haven't actually killed anyone, but there's a more to this than you see. He said, I want you to reflect on the heart attitude that motivates people to kill. And drives us to seek revenge rather than reconciliation. So this is Matthew in chapter 5. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders shall be subject to judgment. 
But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, that means you empty head, you worthless person, is answerable to court. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember your brother or your sister has something against you, then first leave your gift there and go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer it. In other words, what Jesus is saying there is reconciliation is more important than your service, your religious service. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still on, together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. And Truly I tell you, you won't get out until you've paid the last penny. Paul follows this approach as well. He expands on what Jesus' teaching means for Christians living in community in a world that was oppressive and unjust. He said this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the sight of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, It's mine to avenge, I will repay says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you're heaping burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this command, then, directly challenges us in two ways. First, we need to refuse to take innocent life and to reject, secondly, and repent of the anger, bitterness and desire for revenge that can lie behind the impulse to kill. It's challenging both our actions and our hearts. So that's what the rule means. Why is it given? Well, the rule's rooted in two fundamental insights. The first is that life is given by God and that only God has the right to take it. Life is given by God and only God has the right to take it. So, for example, this occurs throughout the Bible in myriad ways. I'll just pick two readings that illustrate something of this principle. Now, this is John chapter 1. It says of Jesus, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that was made. In other words, all of creation is from him. It's his. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Life comes from God. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6, Paul explains that there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. Our lives are not our own. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Life is given by God and it is not ours to take. Now this is a bit different from the idea of a human right to life. Human rights come from Christian uh, theology and philosophy. They're uh, at times a very useful tool legally. But we need to be clear that in Christian thought and in the Bible's view, there is no such thing as a right to life. I have no right to be alive. I didn't give myself life. 
I was given it. Life is a gift, not a right. Nor do I have the right to take anyone else's life. All human life is God's. It's given by him and he alone has the right to take it or to authorise its taking. So that's the first insight. The first insight that's underneath this rule is that all human life is God's. The second is that the impulse to kill is often, not always, but often, a symptom of soul sickness and sin. It comes from bitterness, from anger, from pride. Murder is the most obvious symptom of our sin sickness. The command is necessary because we become full of pride and so we want revenge for when we're slighted. It's necessary because we become full of anger and so we hurt others when we don't get what we want. It's necessary because we become full of selfish ambition and so we use and manipulate and sacrifice others to gain advantage for ourselves. Ultimately, as Jesus says, it comes whenever we see other people as somehow less than us. That's what the word rachas getting at. Literally seeing someone as less than me, less than human, literally. Worthless. Whenever we think like that, we begin to commit murder in our hearts. That's how the great genocides of history have all started. They're only Jews, not human beings, and so they can be killed. They're only blacks and not human beings, and so they can be enslaved and killed. And on and on it goes. We see the other as less than as worth less, and we feel able to take their life. Practically then, what does this mean? Beyond obviously not murdering our enemies. First, and probably most relevant to most of us, it should prompt us to examine our hearts for any trace of anger, of envy, or of hatred. The Heidelberg Catechism, which was drawn up by the Reformers to teach Uh, the Christian faith to young people, puts it very well. We are not to belittle, hate, insult or kill our neighbour, not by our thoughts, our words, our looks or gestures, and certainly not by actual deeds. And we are not to be party to this in others. Rather, we are to put away all desire for revenge. By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, Envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. In God's sights, all such are disguised forms of murder. By condemning envy, hatred and anger, God wants us to love our neighbours as ourselves. To be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful and friendly towards them. To protect them from harm as much as we can. And to do good even to our enemies. How's your heart doing? Second, and I'm coming on to the ethical questions of how we treat end of life. And uh, I want to just flag up again, if you're watching with a young person, then some of this can be distressing. It means that Christians should not contemplate or assist in suicide. Suicide is a tragedy. It often flows from a place of despair or depression or, or, or awful I've suffered from profound periods of depression myself, although never suicidally. I know how difficult that is, even in a small degree. 
We should never speak or act harshly towards those whose lives are marked by the pain of mental breakdown or suicide. However, we do need to be clear that for Christians, suicide, whether assisted or unassisted, is never a legitimate option. My life is not simply mine or anyone else's to take. Suicide and assisting suicide are wrong even if we can understand the circumstances that lead to them and have compassion on those involved. Third, and again I'm conscious that I'm speaking about a situation that is painful and controversial, I want to do it and reaffirm the commitment that we have to love and compassion for all people. But we need to speak for those who are innocent and those who are voiceless. Christians, from the time of Jesus up until now, have universally rejected the practice of abortion. We should be compassionate to anyone who is affected by this. No one is beyond the love of Christ, his kindness or his healing. Yet we do need to be very clear that abortion is wrong. It is the taking of a life that belongs to God. Moreover, there's no basis in scripture, Christian tradition, or as most scientists would say, in biology for distinguishing the development of a fetus over time. It's continuous. There aren't stages. In the words of the poet in the Old Testament, For you, God, created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. There may be room for debate about whether abortion can be a necessary evil if a mother's physical life is under threat. I say that by analogy to self-defence. I'm not wanting to short-circuit those conversations. They are legitimate. But any discussion from a Christian perspective must begin both with compassion, kindness, but a radical and uncompromising commitment to the protection of innocent life. Finally, the command has a consequence for the way our society is organised and governed. In particular, while the church has long recognised in continuity with the Old Testament scriptures that there may be at times when it's necessary for nations to go to war, they should do so hesitantly and only where there's no reasonable alternative. Moreover, every war should aim for a just and swift peace. I want to finish by offering a note of comfort for those whose lives have fallen short of these ideals and to challenge us as a community about how we can help each other to live them out. For those who are carrying guilt or shame or pain, you need to hear that there is no one and nothing that cannot be forgiven and healed in Jesus Christ. There is no one and nothing that cannot stop you being accepted and joining his family. 
if you suffered with the pain of anger, of bitterness, of revenge and malice, then there is forgiveness and healing in Jesus. Bring them to him and ask him to make you whole. If you have taken innocent life, even in circumstances you bitterly regret, then there is forgiveness and healing in Jesus. Bring it to him and ask him to make you whole. For us as a community of Christians, there is a challenge here as well. We're not called to be those who stand in condemnation on the world around us, but those who embody a better, a more compassionate and a more holistic way of life. We should be a community of peace, of reconciliation, of acceptance and love. We should be a people who do not simply sweep differences under the carpet and allow hurts to go unresolved, who do, nor should we be those who pursue revenge and factionalism. Rather, we should do the hard, the painful and the rewarding work of peacemaking. We should be a community committed to supporting and promoting life in the way that we care for one another, in providing a home for those who have fallen short of the lives they want to live, in helping one another to parent our children, in showing compassion to those at the ends of their lives, in caring for the disabled and in telling them that their lives are worth something, an infinite amount, enough for the Son of God to give himself for them. We should advocate for the vulnerable. We should resist injustice, racism and structural oppression. We should accept and we should comfort the broken. To live well, we must not kill the innocent in our words, in our thoughts or in our actions. Stay tuned, we have communion coming up.